I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. (laughs) Yes, I haven't talked about this chapter in my past for a long time, but I was uh, in 2008. I I moved to New Zealand and... Worked at Molly Malone's for a while and then had a, a brief stint at your Ministry of Health. And I have very fond memories of, of living in Wellington. And I understand you're also a patron of what Espresso Holic, which uh, I think was a pretty popular cafe back in the day as well. But no longer there, sadly. Yeah, I, I wanted to make a pilgrimage back. I mean, it was my uh, my 3 a.m. guilty pleasure was going and getting a chocolate chip cookie and uh, and a coffee after I finished my shift at Molly Malone's. So it's a real blast from the past. But I hear that I hear they're both now gone. So <laughs> apparently I was bad luck for them. I guess uh, it's not a fluke, but um, Molly Malone's may not have played a, a big role in getting where you are today, but there was a mass murder in 1905 that did. So can you explain this to us? Yeah, so, so this is sort of one of the origin stories of this book, which is to say that there's a, a, a woman who is named Clara Maudlin Jansen, and she lived in a little place called Keeler, Wisconsin in 1905 and lived in a little farmhouse with her four young children and her husband. And she had a mental breakdown uh, at, at one point, probably post, postpartum and depression, but they wouldn't have called it that back then. Mm. And she unfortunately and tragically decided to uh, kill her four children and then take her own life. And her husband came home to find the whole family dead. And the reason it's in the opening of Fluke is because this is my great-grandfather's first wife who, uh, who, who took her life and so on. And, you know, I didn't know about this until I was in my mid-20s, at which point my dad told me about it. And, and I realized not only was there this macabre sort of chapter in our family's history, but also that quite literally I wouldn't exist um, but for this mass murder. And the really perplexing thing is that this shows the intertwined nature of, of cause and effect because you wouldn't be listening to my voice if these these children weren't killed in 1905, 119 years ago. So, you know, it is an extraordinary sort of story that helps me make sense of my life as a cosmic accident. Um, but it also, I think, speaks to the intertwined nature of, of cause and effect that we often ignore, which I'm trying to highlight in the book. Mm-hmm. So basically random events and smallest interactions can be huge game changes uh, through history, effectively. Yeah, so, I mean, the opening story of the book is uh, an illustration of chaos theory applied to humans. And a lot of what Fluke is is basically trying to look at chaos theory and think about how it affects our lives and our societies. And so the opening story is about this uh, vacation taken in 1926 by via this uh, this American couple mm. to Kyoto, Japan, and they, they fall in love with the city. And normally... You know, a vacation doesn't really change the course of history, but but this one did because the husband, 19 years later, ended up as America's Secretary of War. His name was Henry Stimson, and he was tasked with overseeing the targeting decision for the first atomic bomb. And, and the generals all picked Kyoto as their top target. 
And he twice met with President Truman to get taken off the, the targeting list. And so the first bomb was dropped on Hiroshima instead, simply because 19 years previously, one of the top American government officials uh, had taken a vacation there. And so, you know, I think what we tend to do as humans is we tend to look at big events and try to look for big, obvious causes. And the argument that I'm making is that in an interconnected world that's extremely complicated, you have small ripple effects that can reverberate and cause major changes. Um, you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people dying in one city rather than another. Mm. And yet what we try to do all the time, whether it's in the news or in my realm of social science, is to come up with a neat and tidy story that explains everything. And, and my argument is that actually the world runs on a lot more randomness, accidental and arbitrary factors, flukes, basically, than, mm. than we tend to believe. And luck, presumably, for some yeah, I mean, l- luck is is one of those words that we use to describe when we don't have an explanation for something, right? And it is something where all of us have luck in our lives. I think one of the things that's really bewildering to think about, though, and I talk about this with this term, I phrase the, the, the snooze button effect, where you sort of think about, you know, waking up one morning and you're a bit tired and you slap the snooze button. And then, you know, the clock rewinds by five seconds and you don't slap the snooze button and your life unfolds in two different ways. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that's really bewildering is that we think about luck in, in sort of what happens to us that we can observe. But there's all sorts of invisible luck that we don't think about, right? The sort of invisible pivot points in our moment, in, in our lives, those snooze button moments where things could have turned out radically differently. And we're simply oblivious to it because we don't know the alternative pathway mm-hmm. in our lives. And also, you know, the biggest forms of luck for me, for example, are things I had absolutely no control over, which are to say, you know, when I was born, where I was born who my parents were, my upbringing, and also, you know, the way that my brain was healthy and so on. Mm. And those are certainly the most important factors in my life. Like there's nothing even close to that. Mm. And none of them did I have any control over. So I think that's one of those things that also when you start to think about it, it gets quite bewildering pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. The other uh, interesting uh, term you use is Kokura's luck, which also relates to Japan. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, so this is the second atomic bomb. So the first one was the uh, the vacation 19 years previously. The second one was supposed to go to uh, a place called Kokura, and it was basically the city where uh, they had chosen it for a variety of strategic reasons and so on. But there was briefly cloud cover when the bomber approached. And so the bomber circled, the clouds didn't part, and so it had to go, because it was running out of fuel, to the secondary target, which was Nagasaki. And Kokura's luck refers to unknowingly escaping disaster in in modern Japanese parlance. And the idea is because, you know, it exists because for decades, nobody in Kokura knew that they were the primary target. Maybe somebody saw an airplane in the sky, but of course, they didn't clock that this was going to be the second atomic bomb. So I think this also speaks to this notion, both in our societies and in our lives, of all these things where we're constantly unaware of either, you know, extremely good luck or extreme misfortune. And when someone asked me, you know, what was the biggest fluke in your life? I mean, I, I think the honest answer is I probably don't know. There's probably been times where I've almost been killed mm. and I have absolutely no idea about it because I didn't know somebody else was falling asleep at the car next to me or whatever it was. Mm. And I just had Kokura's luck and I'm oblivious to it. Mm. I often think of uh, the likes of those people in, uh, in 9-11 who perhaps the day they were supposed to be in the Twin Tower buildings were late for work or there was a train delay or something like that. Um, 
And then I also think of, uh, actually appropriately, February the 3rd, the anniversary of Buddy Holly's uh, death, what, I think 65 mm. years ago now, and Waylon Jennings, who swapped his seat to go on a cold bus and allowed, I think it was the big bopper, to go on the aeroplane. And, of course, the plane crashed. And Waylon Jennings, I think, took a long time to recover from the, the guilt associated with that. But that's, that's effectively what you're saying. It's effectively a fluke, isn't it? Yeah, so so uh, I'm from Minnesota, which is just north of where Buddy Holly's plane crashed in uh, in in Iowa. But the 9/11 one, it's a, it's actually there's a story, and I, I met this guy for the first time a week ago, who I write about in Fluke, and it's it's an extraordinary story where he basically had a coworker who gave him a tie that was a Monet painting, and he decided to go put it on because he was so touched by this sort of gesture of kindness, this artistic tie. And he went back to his hotel room to iron a different shirt that would match the tie. And as he went back to do this, he looks out the window and his colleague who's given him the tie has gone up to the conference center on the 101st floor of the World Trade Center. And she dies because the plane hits and he sees the plane hit the building while he's ironing his tie. (laughs) And one of his other colleagues who was supposed to present at the conference had been requested by him to go to a different conference in San Francisco. And he was on one of the planes that ended up hitting the World Trade Center. So, you know, all these confluence of events, just as they were, lead to this survival. And one of the things that was really interesting that he said to me was he said the most upsetting thing that people said to him was that everything happens for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is normally a thing that we do comfort ourselves with, this idea that, like, there's this grand plan for everything. But he says, you know, look, I was an accident. This was an accident that I survived. It was totally random. And I don't like the notion that there was some grand plan that said my colleagues were supposed to die and I was supposed to live. So, you know, I think there's some of this stuff where... The philosophical interpretation of this, which I, you know, I, I debate at great length in the book, is something where I think we we're probably better off accepting that there is a significant amount of randomness in our lives. And I find this really liberating to think personally, because I think that it takes the pressure off some of us to think that, you know, we are sort of a cosmic accident. And I think that also a lot of our lives are. Mm. And, you know, you should take a little bit less success for your for your um, sorry, you should take a little bit less credit for your success and a little bit less blame. Uh, for your failures. And that's something that he also internalized because he his survival was a complete fluke. If he hadn't gotten that tie at just the right moment, uh, he would almost certainly now be dead. I like the also the um, fact that you, you talk of, of billionaires and how we all look to billionaires and think, my gosh, they're smart people. They're incredible, the, their ability to make money. But again, uh, a lot of that can be put down to fluking. Yeah, there's a there's a brilliant study that I cite in the book, which is it's basically a collaboration from a, some economists and physicists, and they basically set up this fake society with a you know sort of loose correlation between talent and wealth, which is you know how we sort of think of the way the world works. Now, the thing is that because wealth is a very long tailed distribu- distribution, which basically means that you know when you think about height, for example. Like there's nobody who's a billion times taller than you, but there is someone who's a billion times richer than other people on the planet. And so this long tail distribution of wealth makes it even more prone to the arbitrary forces of luck. And so what they did in their simulation was they said, okay, look, you know, everybody who is in the world is sort of around the average levels of talent. There's some people who are on the extremes who are really talented and some people who are really not so talented, but most people are clustered towards the middle. And because of that, if you think about luck as a lightning strike, where it just sort of hits someone, then it's most likely to hit someone in the middle because that's where the most people are. And so when they found these simulations, when they sort of ran them over and over, 
the lesson they kept on getting uh, from the simulation was that the richest person in the world was almost always of average or slightly above average talent, but never the most talented, because that person was unlikely to hit lucky, you know, to to basically get hit by lightning to be mm-hmm. lucky. And so what they found is that the richest person in the world just sort of got lucky twice or maybe even three times in their simulation. I think that's how this actually works. I mean, there is some correlation between talent and wealth, but it's not nearly as strong as we imagine. And I think that's something that, you know, gives us a little bit of humility in the world mm-hmm. when we look at things like, you know, Elon Musk, for example, uh, lighting billions of dollars on on fire when he has acquired Twitter, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not exclusively genius that is universal. There's sometimes where people who are very rich make you know catastrophic mistakes of judgment. Mm. But there is a term, isn't it? You make your luck. Is that true? Yeah, and I, I don't I don't really agree with this. I mean, there's there's a part of the book where I evaluate this, the, the claims around free will and so on, which is a slightly different idea around this, whether we have this uh, this ability to to choose the future and so on. But I but I do think that the making your own luck. I mean. As I said before, I think the most important lucky things that have happened to me, I have no control over. Mm. And I think, you know, what you can do is when luck does strike, you can harness it. I think people are better at harnessing luck than others, right? They, they seize opportunity when it arrives to them. But I think the idea that, you know, you can sort of just decide that, you know, fortune will smile upon you. I, I, I don't agree with that. And I think there are some things where completely arbitrary factors conspire to produce really great outcomes for some people and really awful outcomes for others. Mm. And of course, they're also societally constrained as well. I mean, I, you know, one of the places that I do lots of field work in is Madagascar, one of the poorest countries in the world. And if I was born in rural Madagascar, we wouldn't be talking. I mean, there's just no way. Like it's, you know, 40% of the island has electricity. The average person makes a dollar fifty a day. I mean, it's, it's just the odds of escaping that, no matter how lucky you are, are very, very low. And so I think there's some of these things where, you know, we, we, we chalk up a lot of, you know, I'm particularly a product of this because I'm American and the American dream is like this sort of mythology on steroids where it's like, if you want to be successful, you just have to do these five things and work hard. And it's just not true. And I think some of that stuff is actually important to debunk because it creates victim blaming for people in places like rural Madagascar who simply can't escape the forces that they have arbitrarily been placed in mm. because they were born into one of the poorest societies in, in modern, in modern uh, life. Mm-hmm. So in our modern times, of course, we like to think we are in control, I, I would suggest. Um, but you're saying really that there's so many random events. Uh, I mean, a classic example is uh, what happened in the, the, the Suez Canal a couple of years ago. Yeah. So, you know, I, th- I have this line that I come back to again and again, Fluke, where I say that we control nothing, but we influence everything. And I think when it comes to societal change, what we've designed is a world that is more prone to shocks because of flukes than ever before. Mm-hmm. Right. So the Suez Canal is a perfect example. And, you know, I won't go into all the details, but it's, it's part of what, what's called the sand pile model in terms of having very, very little slack in social systems. We've engineered a world in which there is very little give so that if anything goes wrong, it is catastrophic. And the Suez Canal boat, which was, you know, a gust of wind hits this boat and it twists sideways. All of a sudden, it causes $54 billion of damage. And because of this absolute quest for efficiency and optimization, we have downgraded resilience and made ourselves prone to what are called black swan events, or these sort of big unforeseen catastrophic events that have you know serious consequences. And I think that's by design. I mean, the, the way that I see the world today, and I describe some of these dynamics in the book, is that 
we've basically engineered a world in which, you know, Starbucks will never change day to day. And we can always expect this to have extreme regularity and predictability. But, you know, democracies are collapsing and rivers are drying up. And it's the opposite sort of of the uncertainty that our hunter gatherer ancestors dealt with, because they used to have to deal with day to day uncertainty. You know, where am I going to get my my next meal or, you know, will this saber toothed tiger eat me? But like their world didn't change very much. It was sort of hunter gatherers through the generations over and over and over. And we have worlds that are changing constantly. I mean, I grew up without the Internet and now it's impossible to not imagine mm. having it every minute of the day. So I think. You know, we have engineered a system that is more prone to shocks simply because we have created rapid technological change with very little slack built in. And I think it's a mistake that's going to create more and more of these shocks as we go through the 21st century, particularly with AI and other uh, technological shifts like that. Mm. It sort of smacks of maybe the, the movie Sliding Doors and uh, and even uh, Back to the Future, you know, that sort of uh, time shifting thing where you know, uh, how things could change just if you went through that door rather than this door. Yeah, so I like the the Back to the Future one I like because I, I think it convinces people of what I'm talking about, where, where a lot of people say, oh, you know, ignore the noise, focus on the signal, the small stuff gets, you know, sort of ironed out in the end. Then I say, well, look, you know, when you think about science fiction, you think about time travel to the past, and, you know, you travel back a million years and you squish a bug, you know, will that affect the shape of humanity in the future? People say, yeah, maybe I could see that. Or you say, OK, you travel back two generations and you talk to your grandfather in a time travel scenario. Is that going to affect whether you exist or not? And they say, yeah, maybe. And then you say, OK, well, why don't we think about that in the present? Right. Like, wh- why don't conversations in the present change the future? Why don't squished bugs or missed buses or missed trains change the future? And the answer is they do, right? I mean, I think the, the argument that I'm making is that through chaos theory, we can accept that these small tweaks can have profound implications over time, just the same way that I'm the byproduct in this conversation we're having now is the byproduct of a mass murder from Wisconsin 119 years ago. I think the reason we don't talk about that or acknowledge it is because it's overwhelming. I think mean, it's just extremely overwhelming to imagine that every snooze button is changing your life. But I think it's scientifically validated that it is. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the book is trying to grapple with how do we live or how do we think about a world in which even the small stuff matters? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, not all of us are going to reshape the world as profoundly as where the atomic bomb goes. But I do think we are redirecting the trajectory of the future with every little thing that we do in some ways big and some ways small. So what can we do to control our future? Do we have to just uh, roll with the flow, as it were? Yeah, I mean, I think this is where, you know, the the we control nothing, but we influence everything mantra that I said before has been really helpful for me thinking about this. I mean, writing this book did change my worldview on a lot of things. And the way that I've sort of adjusted to it is to say, like, you know what, like, I can't control everything in my life. I have a lot of stuff that is outside of my ability to sort of harness or, or manipulate but I am not unimportant, right? And I think that's a really uplifting message. The influencing everything aspect of that is one where I think it's a, an antidote to some of the malaise that many people feel in modern life of sort of interchangeability or replaceability with AI or robots taking their jobs or whatever. Because, you know, we all are reshaping the future constantly. And I think when I give up a little bit of control in my mentality, I think it liberates me to sort of enjoy life. I mean, I, I think I am a cosmic accident, both in terms of the fact that you know, humanity may not have existed if a space rock didn't kill the dinosaurs mm-hmm. 66 million years ago. 
Um, so you change that by five seconds and all of us don't exist. But on top of that, you know, because I'm the byproduct of this mass murder, I feel like a, a sort of accident of a tragedy. And it liberates me to say, you know, if maybe there's no cosmic purpose to my life and what I'm supposed to do is sort of enjoy it with people I love and care about and try to make the world a little better for other people. And I think, you know, that's sort of, it's it's the opposite of nihilism. I think a lot of people encounter these ideas and think, oh, I'll become nihilistic because I have no control. I, I think the influence aspect of it is the antidote to that. It says, no, you, you are constantly affecting the world and therefore your actions are important. They do matter and you matter, which is the, the philosophy that I've derived from, from grappling with these ideas over the last several years. Mm. So every detail of the past creates the present for us and every moment of the present effectively, I guess, is our future. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the way the world is. I mean, the, I think this is one of those things where um, we've been taught to ignore that style of thinking because so much of our world is built on models today. Right. Like we have we have so many things that run on models and the models ignore the small stuff. They focus on the big, obvious variables. And we sort of internalize the lesson that that's how the world works. And it's just, you know, I, I say it explicitly in fluke. It's a lie. It's not true. The small stuff matters. Now, it's not always going to radically reshape your life. You're, you know, there's there's parts of our lives that have order and structure and are going to stay on train tracks, even if the train leaves the station a little bit later, like the snooze button might, you know, sort of delay you, but not change the track you're on. But other things, it will affect you. And, you know, every conversation we have has ripple effects. Every choice about turning left or right, you meet different people, you have different conversations, you have different trajectories through life. And it's especially true when you think about things that are highly consequential, like the moment that a baby is conceived, right? I won't go into detail on the radio, but you know, it's one of these things where if you have even a slight change to that timing of a millisecond, a different kid is born, which means that on that day, you know, if you stop to have a cup of coffee or a sip of coffee, even you've got a different kid, but that's true for every moment in your life up to that point. Right. And, and this is the stuff that I think is just bewildering, but obviously correct about the way the world is. And I think we need to sort of grapple with it because the philosophical implications, in my view, are, are extremely liberating and actually uplifting as opposed to a lot of the malaise that we feel in, in, in modern life. Now, in your book, you tell a, a lovely story as well, um, for one person anyway, about uh, a swimmer in Greece who was dragged out on a, on a rip. Yeah, so this is where I, I'm taking aim at something I call the delusion of individualism, which, you know, my American culture has steeped me in for <laughs> decades. That sort of everything is up to us, right? You're the main character in your own story. And this is the story that I'm telling here is of a guy named Ivan off the coast of Greece who goes swimming, gets ripped out to sea, and he's missing for like 24 hours. And everyone knows how these stories end when someone's at sea for 24 hours. Except for this time, right when he was about to slip beneath the waves, he spots a soccer ball in the distance and swims to it and clings onto it. Now, this would be an, an amazing story already. Mm. But what's really amazing about it is they show this on the Greek news. And this woman, you know, I can imagine her like in her kitchen dropping her mug of coffee as she sees this. Because what happens is she looks at the ball and she realizes that it's her kid's ball and he's kicked it off the cliff near their house, 80 miles away from where the swimmer was 10 days earlier. And by complete chance, it has intersected with him right as he's about to drown. And the reason I tell this story in the book is because that's the way the world is. We're constantly affected by intertwined decisions of people we'll never know, never mm -hmm. meet, uh, be oblivious to. 
But this is just one of those really obvious moments where that dynamic stares someone in the face because it's clear that if that person hadn't kicked the soccer ball, Ivan would be dead. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, what, what the delusion of individualism tells you is that you don't have to worry about those soccer balls. They don't, they don't matter. And, and they do. The, the world that we live in is constantly being reshaped by 8 billion people. And we're, we're part of it, right? We're influencing it. But the idea that we can simply control our path through life, I mean, it's completely, uh, I, I just think it's completely wrong, basically. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. Brian, there's a similar story here in New Zealand just recently of a man who fell off his launch, his boat. He was out fishing and he and he fell off and he and the boat, of course, just drifted away from him. And he was in the ocean basically um, for two days. Similar story to our Greek friend. Um, and he had his watch on his wrist and he was using the sun's reflection to, you know, flick out a, a light. And three fishermen, uh, a leisure fishermen, who happened to be coming by at the time, noticed the flashing and thought, well, I wonder what that is, and went over to investigate and managed to save the guy. So there you go, a very similar story. It still happens. Yeah, well, and I, this is why, you know, we, we look at these life and death moments like 9-11, which we were just talking about, or somebody about to drown or die. But I think the thing is, we only tend to apply them to the super consequential events. Yes. And I think the, the, the really powerful idea here is that this is happening to you literally right now. Your, your pathway through life is going to be affected by what other people are doing right now. And you're just completely oblivious to it. And I like that. I like the idea that we're all sort of this interconnected web of causality. And, you know, maybe it's a bit nerdy to think this way, but I, but I really like imagining that my life is being reshaped in ways that I can't, can't foresee by the actions of people I'll never meet. And it's sort of a wonderful, maddening reality that we only get this glimpse of when someone's about to slip beneath the waves or when they're about to die mm. on a plane hitting a building. But it is happening literally right now to all of us. Brian, it's been fascinating chatting with you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.